Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Ramani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? I have been thinking about Facebook a lot recently. It's been dominating the news for two reasons. Number one is there was a big whistleblower. Her name is Frances Hogan. She kind of told us what we already knew, but really confirmed it with a lot of documents and a lot of evidence that Facebook has run its own research into its impact on users. And they have found Facebook to be damaging the mental health of teenagers, especially girls. The platform is an amplifier of hate, misinformation and political divisions. But Facebook itself knew this in-depth, detailed research and Apparently, Mark Zuckerberg was given many soft options to try and make changes to kind of fix these problems, and he decided not to. And in her words, she said that the company put astronomical profits before people, and those astronomical profits are $30 billion, and it just shows capitalism. I guess Facebook is not the first company ever to do this. It is being compared to Big Tobacco right now, because tobacco companies did know about the detrimental effects of tobacco on everyone's health long before they were made to admit it and they even said it was healthy and stuff. I was just watching the recent John Oliver on PFAs which is this substance which is a chemical compound. It's in Teflon for example. Every single human being almost on earth, like 90% of us, have them in our body and they're permanent and they knew about the terrible effects that this would have by their own research on children, on people who worked with it, on the ingestion of it, on people who lived nearby these plants for years before, you know, and they never did anything. So this is the same kind of thing. And then, of course, on Monday, Facebook had a very big outage. 3.5 billion people were affected. And Facebook comprises of WhatsApp, Instagram, and of course Facebook, and this had a lot of effect, and it showed us just how reliant we are on this massive corporation that puts astronomical profits above people, and whose kind of algorithm is affecting our mental health. Today, the day that we're releasing the podcast, is World Mental Health Day. I think this massive corporation has a lot to do with how we are all feeling, and affects us and our brains immensely. And besides that, some people felt immense relief. Social media managers felt both relief and stressed. Small business owners were affected. They lost a lot of sales. In Mexico, politicians were cut off from their constituents. In Colombia, a non-profit organization that uses WhatsApp to connect victims of gender-based violence to life-saving services, found its work impaired. So a lot of people were affected in a lot of different ways. And this led to the Federal Trade Commission asking for it to be broken up. And I think we really have to think about our use, the effects, how our entire mental health and worldview and everything is really affected by Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. What a douche. We knew it when we saw social media, the film, that he was a douche and he's still the biggest douche on the planet today. Bar Jeff Bezos. I believe in a previous episode, we referred to him as a pasty-faced... What was it? It was very good. Well, you should all go listen to that podcast episode. We'll link it below. And In fact, the Facebook outage on Monday caused their stock shares to plummet 5%. 
And it was kind of a strange thing. I was at a concert on Monday, and it might have been a coincidence. Maybe everyone's just like super excited to be at a concert now that restrictions are loosening and like that's possible again. But I felt like nobody was on their phones. Everybody was just paying attention to the concert. Nobody was Instagramming. Might have been a coincidence. But there was a weird kind of relief that came with it, wasn't it? Because you don't have to perform for Instagram that you're having a good time. You can't stay hyper-connected at all times. Because sometimes I do think that we're always so connected. And connection is great. I mean, during corona, the ability to connect and sort of dial in with the world in a virtual way is what saved a lot of us. Maybe saved is an exaggeration. But when physical contact was cut out, it was really the way a lot of us stayed afloat. But sometimes I think this level of connection and communication that we're working at, it's not very normal, is it? We're always switched on. We're always talking. We're always connecting. We're always on Instagram. We're always on Facebook. We're always on WhatsApp. We're always on Twitter. We're always on Snapchat. Well, I'm not on Snapchat, but also I'm sure the youths are. We're always on TikTok. So there was something kind of both nice and damning about, oh, wow, we can't be hyper-connected and hyper-communicating all the time, but also it has detrimental effects. What does this mean for the world we live in? But the question is, are we hyper-connected? Because I think when you're at the concert, so much of our lives and our communities are online and we're looping them in in one way and being more connected, but are we really connected to the experience and the space in the present moment? No, and I think that's why it's so damning, kind of, because it's a very superficial, in quotes, connection. Because if I'm at a concert and I'm super busy Instagramming the entire concert, that means that I'm not really, for lack of a better word, present on Instagram, and nor am I really present physically, because... I'm not really paying attention to what's happening online, but I'm not really paying attention to the concert. I'm hovering in this weird in-between space. And I think that that's what happens a lot of time because you can form super deep connections and like communicate with people through social media and WhatsApp. I don't know. I feel like that can make you pulled in so many different directions because you're not really present ever anywhere, but you're always present and you, you always feel like you have to perform and be active and be vigilant and be there. Yeah. But I mean, there is sort of something about you can connect to different people you wouldn't meet otherwise. And you can form deep connections. You can find your space on the internet. What you just described, like neither being here or there and halfway in between these two worlds, it sounds like a definition of purgatory. (laughs) Welcome to the modern world. You mentioned communities and mental health in communities is very interesting. There was an article written on Vox called How Mental Health became a social media minefield and the subtitle is social media is now basically WebMD for mental health and I think a lot of people do realize things about themselves when other people share things and find their communities and find support and find people who understand what they're going through or how they feel online. However, like we were saying about Facebook, they put astronomical profits before people and what the algorithm does is it puts us into categories constantly because it's trying to basically sell us stuff. And what's happened is we've been categorized so much and we're always getting categorized further and further into these kind of micro-identities. So, you know, somebody with ADHD identifies as somebody with ADHD. And famously, a guy called Moskowitz, who wrote about what he called the buzzfeedification of mental health, got into trouble because once on the internet, on Twitter, he said 
You know, I don't think ADHD is an inherent condition. I think it's caused by the modern world and the internet, basically. And he got a lot of pushback from people with ADHD on the internet. And he got accused of all sorts of things, like being against neurodivergent people and all this kind of stuff. What he thought was going on there is that people had identified so strongly with having ADHD and found their niche in the, what he calls, the vast terror of internet capitalism. And he noticed that the large majority of people who were angry tweeters were young. And his theory is that they were most subject to forming their identities online and finding their communities online. And they really had to hang on to that because in the modern world, we're asked every day when we see one music video, when we see adverts, when we see we're scrolling all the time, we're just asked always to like identify with so many different different people. And so we feel fragmented and therefore we have to really find our communities. We spend a lot of time online in our own bubbles, which also kind of makes us isolated and also kind of dependent on these platforms and makes us spend more time on these platforms to be marketed to. So what he's saying is, yeah, you know, you're underestimating the effect of capitalism on your mental health completely. Even if you find your community or whatever, it's still isolating you or, I don't know, it makes me think of a kind of cult in a way, like find your belief or your micro-identity or thing and then you're very reluctant to let go of that because people do need identities they do need a strong sense of who they are increasingly that's being defined by online and companies like facebook which is kind of not good i think in a hyper polarized world where you're sort of pulled into many different directions it kind of makes sense to me that if there's something that can give you stability and that yeah makes you very clear in who you are that that can become increasingly more important I'm reading this book called The Feminist City about feminist geography. And in the chapter that I'm in right now, she's talking about this idea of public spaces and who has access to public spaces, in particular, who's allowed to exist in public spaces and for free. So she's talking about how during Corona, the government is encouraging us to go outside, keeping in mind the author is Canadian. And so the majority of her examples are hyper-focused on life in the United States, Canada, and to some extent, the UK, because she lived in London for a while. So it's very sort of directed at those countries and the circumstances within those countries. But to a certain extent, a lot of it is also is applicable to Germany. But she's talking about how the government is encouraging people to go outside and spend time outside. But the ways that they're enforcing being outside is always within the constraints of capitalism. So for example, cafes get to take over more space on streets. This idea of bubble dining is being introduced all the while. And I believe she's citing an example specifically from in Toronto. It's okay for middle-class people to sit in these bubbles and enjoy this free space outside. And yet a hundred meters away, the government forcibly destroyed a homeless camp. And so she's talking about this idea of like, who's allowed to exist for free in public spaces and who's allowed to take up space. Just this idea of young people don't have a lot of spaces they're allowed to exist for, for free in public. When I was a kid, malls was a thing, which is still like a capitalistic thing, obviously. The concept of a mall is mind-blowing when you actually stop and think about it. But you can just go and spend time there with your friends and you don't really have to buy anything, even though you inevitably will, and it is a hotbed of capitalism. 
but things like libraries or skate parks, all these things that are slowly disappearing, community centers, all these things are underfunded or not as important. And I guess maybe it's different if, sorry, I just randomly started thinking about religion because where I grew up, it's super religious. And so you do have these like youth groups and these spaces for kids within the Catholic church or the Protestant church. But I guess if religion is no longer relevant in people's lives and those spaces are also disappearing, I guess a sort of like budget cuts happened and things become stricter online is becoming where young people are spending their time. And yes, of course, being online isn't free. There's that great quote where it says, like, if you don't know what the product is, you are the product, right? So if you're on Facebook, it's free, but it's not really free because you're paying with your data. But it still kind of is a space. Like, the internet, whether it be TikTok, Tumblr, Instagram, young people can exist there without paying money. So it makes sense to me that more and more young people would flock to the internet because it's a space where they have agency and they, they can exist in public without money being demanded of them. Yeah, and the cost is... Number one, mental health, and number two, fragmentation of our society, which we've been seeing quite a lot, according to Haugen. And the documents that she has released into the public, girls especially who spend time on Instagram have problems with body image, confidence, eating disorders, and then those people are targeted with more dieting content and all that, which makes them more depressed. The app actually makes them depressed, which makes them stay on the app more. And then the other thing is that Moskowitz points out is that if you define yourself as somebody, for example, who is suffering from grief, and you connect with a big community of people who are suffering from grief and depression from grief, and you're in this community online, it might be, it could go one of two ways, I guess, but it, it might be that, you know, it helps you get over it. But it also might be that you really identify with all these people and this community, and it becomes really strongly part of your identity, this depression, this grief, that you will not be able to overcome it, and you'll stay in it. And of course, that is something that Facebook and Instagram, these big companies kind of want because your entire life and your community is just that. I think I'm also seeing a lot of people insist on their micro-identities, which is formed by this algorithm that's further and further categorizing us. And a lot of people also getting annoyed by people who are saying, oh, I am this identity or I'm this. Yeah, they're really getting annoyed by this constant categorization and I feel just from my conversations with people who are not on the internet that much who are getting annoyed by it mm. but that's my that's non-scientific that's just very personal observation which doesn't really count for much it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way isn't it it's kind of like your horoscope do you know what I mean so you read it and you're like oh my god yes you'll look for examples in your life you're like that's so true I don't think that invalidates it or makes it any less true. I'm not talking about the horoscope. I'm talking about identities. But your identity is still true, but it is... Yeah, so I think it, it comes down to this idea that everything in your life has to be marketable. And every aspect of your identity, you have to be able to be targeted by something. What you just said about horoscopes goes... In these articles that I've read about ADHD, they focus on ADHD. Because literally... Anyone who reads one of those, and I'm sure you've read those, you know, you know you have ADHD if you... I think everyone who lives today with so many distractions can identify with that. And they can say, I have ADHD. And one of the big problems with the history of ADHD, there was a big debate in the US especially, was the question of, are we diagnosing children for just being children? Of course, children are going to fidget. That's what 
some children do, and maybe they don't have ADHD, and are we over-medicating them? And there's this question of over-pathologization, so like making everything pathological, like even normal behavior, for example, depression from grief. Are we over-concentrating on all of these things? And is the internet helping us, or is there any point to it? I guess it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I can totally see the good in it, because... If you feel very isolated, you feel alone, it's a great source of, I don't want to say it's a great source of, but it it is a great source of information. It's a great starting point. But at what point, like you said, do you not only over-identify, but just receive, I don't want to say incorrect information, but go into these like hyper-focused sense of identity? One of the founders of BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti, wrote a paper in 1996 as an undergrad at UC Santa Cruz, and it was called Capitalism and Schizophrenia, Contemporary Visual Culture and the Acceleration of Identity Formation and Dissolution. And this is what he writes. As capitalism decodes and deterritorializes, it reaches a limit at which point it must artificially re-territorialize by augmenting the state apparatus. So what he's saying is, basically, Capitalism must give us things to make sense of the world because capitalism has taken all our inherent internalized senses of self and community away. There was a third grade teacher in Riceville, Iowa, called Jane Elliott, who the day after the assassinating of Martin Luther King Jr. did sort of an experiment with the children in her class. The idea behind it was sort of to teach them about discrimination because they were all white. And she divided her students into two groups, into brown-eyed children and into blue-eyed children. And the kids in the blue-eyed group, it didn't matter if they had blue eyes or not, they were just put into that group. And they were given wristbands that were blue and they referred to as blueies. And basically what she said was, if you had brown eyes, you therefore had more melanin and therefore you were smarter. And what she observed basically was how quickly the kids fell into these identities. They started fighting, taunting, just being nasty to the kids of the other group. But she also saw, obviously, a rise in confidence in the kids who were brown-eyed groups. And she saw that the kids that were blueies started making more mistakes. They became more timid. They lost confidence. And essentially, this was an identity based on nothing other than she told them, you now have brown eyes, you now have blue eyes. And even some of the blue-eyed kids didn't actually have blue eyes. But this identity affected them so much, it affected their confidence, and it caused a massive split through an otherwise harmonious classroom. Actually, I don't know if it was harmonious, but I'm assuming it was. And her idea was to teach them about racial inequality, and she has continues to do this experiment with every class she has. Yeah, it probably wasn't harmonious, but it wasn't split in this artificial way, which yeah. is what the internet is doing. I love that a woman, you know, in the 50s, like, She could probably have had the potential to be one of our greatest social scientists or psychologists or something of this world, but probably because of sexism, ended up being a teacher. And then she did a totally unethical (laughs) experiment on little children. This is kind of funny, quite funny. What you just said also reminded me of one of the things in the paper that Haugen released was to talk about superficial splitting. This idea Facebook does, or Instagram does, the company does in general, of these how they treat high-profile accounts completely differently, so they don't blacklist them or censor them or their content at all. 
So there was this case about, I think it's Neymar, who's a Brazilian football player, because he's got a high-profile account. He posted pictures of somebody who had accused him of rape onto his page and stuff like this, which, again, it's a kind of elitism. You know, it is brown-eyed children against blue-eyed children in a way, and completely superficial and also they know that his account is attracts a lot of people and a lot of users and therefore we can sell them more so that's kind of interesting too also reminds me of there's an artist in berlin his name is marco donnarumma he did his phd in like robotics and art so that just tells you something anyway he created this robot called amygdala which is actually part of our deepest part of our brain animal part of our brain what this robot did, it's like super AI-based, it's a self-learning machine, and it's really creepy as well. It hangs in a server, and it's got this kind of skin-like body that's kind of hanging there, and what it does, it ritually cuts itself. It's like a, a kind of really weird human limb inside an industrial-grade computer server cabinet, basically. And it's got a knife, and it's sculpting its own skin. And he's referring to this kind of animistic ritual found in the tribes of Papua New Guinea and Africa and Eastern Asia, where you cut your skin into specific patterns, and through the experience of like pain and wounds, one achieves like purification. And so ritual purification in tribes was an ancient way of social categorization. So if you had particular patterns on your skin or whatever, you know, you, you occupied a higher place in that tribe. The point he's trying to make is human beings have this need to categorize. And it's a very ancient, ancient impulse that we have. But now AI and algorithm analysis via kind of data is doing this and it's giving us access through this algorithm to things like insurance, for example, jobs even. Like a lot of AI is just deciding whether you should get this job or social or medical assistance. We all know that the algorithm is also unequal and it's the same kind of thing. It's putting us into all these categories and giving some of us privileges and not others all based on some categories. But now it's the computer that's doing it and not our society. So we've just kind of outsourced it to the server. There's something fascinating in the sense of like, if things are being marketed to us and things are being suggested to us by the algorithm, I mean, I guess in a, to a certain extent, you do have control over it, right? In the sense of like, if you click something, they assume you like it, thus the algorithm will show you more. And yeah, there's a potential to come across more interesting things that you wouldn't normally... The point I'm trying to make, as I'm trying to say, is that back in the day, you had to go see a movie, you had to have conversations, you sort of had to seek out identifiers. I had an old colleague who was saying, she's a journalist, that she doesn't think the idea of a subculture exists anymore, because pre-internet, a subculture would exist on its own, and unless through newspaper or word of mouth it somehow spread, it could stay very isolated in and itself, whereas nowadays, Every subculture, if it exists on the internet, and almost everything does, actually I would say everything does, it has the potential to spread and to sort of immediately be mass marketed and aspects of it taken away and infiltrate the mainstream. So nothing can really be a subculture for long. The point that I'm trying to make with this long-winded, nonsensical-seeming sentence is that with the internet, sometimes it feels like our interests are marketed to us. There are things that I'm aware of, that I'm interested in, that I know of, that I wonder, would I be interested in this? Would I know of this? Obviously, I wouldn't know of this, but would I even care if it weren't for the internet? 
If I had to go to the library to find out all of my information and open a book that I borrowed, the amount of knowledge I could consume would be a lot less. And yes, knowledge consumption and learning and education, great things, but now we're hyper-exposed to things. And so sometimes I wonder, are the things I like, are the things I'm interested in, is my sense of humor my sense of humor, or is it internet-learned sense of humor? Are the things I'm interested in my interests, or have I just been exposed so much to them on the internet that they've become my interests? If I didn't have access to all of these things, would I actively go and seek them out? Would I go to a library and would I read this information? Or have I just been exposed to it so much, I think it's my interest now? Or the computer knows that your brain likes those interests and are giving you more of those. The question might not be, is would those be your interest? It might be, would I have completely different interests? It's a bit like Fran Leibovitz was saying, she likes bookshops because it's not the same as shopping online. Because in a bookshop, you wander around and you come across something interesting, like a, a title, and it just grabs you. And there is a lot of random in it. Whereas Amazon, when it recommends something to you, it's based on other things. So are you putting yourself basically more and more into a category and therefore yeah, yeah limiting yourself? Or like the friends you pick, for example, the friends that we, we hang around with, are they all the same as us? And we're not expanding our communities and expanding beyond the type of people who think in the same way, which could be a real loss. Maybe we need to make the effort to come out of our micro-identities and our micro-communities that the internet has forced upon us. And instead of testing, always, is this person on the same page and are they safe? Because we do feel unsafe with the vastness of the world. We no longer live in small little places where it's manageable. The whole world is out there and it's all a threat to our identity in a way. But should we do the opposite and try and go beyond those divisions and those boundaries. And on that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Number one, Mark Zuckerberg is a douche and he's making money off all of us. And also, as Francis Haugen has said, Instagram is bad for your mental health, probably. So try to delete it for a while, take it off your phone, spend a week without it and see how you feel. Thing two, a lot of independent artists, small companies have to be on these social media platforms like us. So you could do all independent artists, all small businesses a favor and follow them in other places. For example, their newsletters on Substack. Misinformed has a newsletter. You can find us on, as mentioned before, Substack. But yeah, go find your favorite artists and small businesses and just in general indie creators on different platforms to help them stay afloat so they're not so overly reliant on these massive gross corporations. And number three, be more open about categorizations and your identities and be true to your own real life rhythms and way of forming identity and community rather than too reliant on the internet to do that for you. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube. For news about the show or upcoming events, 
and links to all our sources, references, and other geeky inspiration, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.